we are going to be, for the last time, in James chapter 4. So if you would turn there with me, this will be our last sermon in this fourth chapter of the book of James. As we begin to see the finish line, as we've been spending so much time in this book this year, in our study of chapter 4, we've noted that this is the gospel high mark of the book of James. In our examination of this chapter, we have returned many times to verse 6 where it says God gives more grace. That glorious announcement that we stand in need of, that encouragement that we need in order to get through this hard and challenging letter. This is a book of the Bible that points out often our faults and our failures. The book that exposes over and over again that we stand in need of great grace. But we find in verse 6, in verse 10 of this chapter, that grace does not come to everyone, but it is for those who humble themselves before the Lord. And humility becomes that linchpin that, that connects the first part of the chapter with the part of the chapter we will be examining this morning. Over the last two weeks, we were in verses 11 and 12, and we see how we fail to be humble when we speak against one another and judge other brothers and sisters in Christ. Because in doing so, we set ourselves up as superior to one another, and we judge the law of God, a role that we were never meant to take on and to play. James reminds us that God is the one who is the supreme judge. He is the one who is able to save and to destroy. James ends verse 12 with a humbling question that we must realize and must apply to ourselves. Who are you, he says, to judge your neighbor? Making it clear that it is sinful for us to think too highly of ourselves, to set ourselves up over our brothers. Having addressed our lack of humility in the way he, we speak, James now turns and shows us how we are to plan our future. This morning, our text is going to be James chapter 4, 13 through 17, but we will pick up in verse 10 in order to set the context for ourselves. So if you would, stand for the reading of God's word. We will read James chapter 4, 10 through 17 this morning. Our text says this, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you, are a judge, if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy but who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not even know what tomorrow brings. What is your life? For you are a mist, a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, I will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. This ends the reading of God's word this morning. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. I have 
three headings that I desire to draw out of our text this morning. First, I want us to see that we are frequently arrogant when we plan. Second, I want us to examine verse 15 and find James' call to us for humility. And then lastly, we will look at the last verse of the chapter and examine his call to obedience. But first, we will begin with the arrogance of man. We find it in verse 13. He starts out by saying, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, and trade and make a profit. There are times as Christians in our walk that we sin and we go on sinning because we never take a moment to stop and think. To our detriment, we do not take time to review and reflect on the truths that we find in Scripture, that Scripture declares to us. This morning, in our text, James is starting out by giving us an invitation. He is calling his readers to stop and consider what he is about to say. He starts out by saying, come now. Some translations say, now listen. You see, James did not write this book because he was bored, because he had nothing else to do. But he decided to write this book to these churches because he desired them to change. He desired them to listen. These two words show us his heart, his desire for them to consider what he has to say and to apply those truths to our lives. Every time that we open God's word, this is the invitation that we receive. It calls us to come now, to listen up, to take into consideration what it is about to declare to us. Scripture makes demands on our lives that we can either lean into or turn away and run away from. James calls us this morning to lean lean in. He calls us to listen up. He says that we are to allow the word to penetrate our hearts. He goes on to address those that he is speaking to, those who say, today or tomorrow, I will do this or that. I will, I will trade. I will make a profit. We read such statements and we think, well, what could be the problem here? What is wrong with that? They are simply planning for the future. We do this all the time. It seems pretty harmless. In fact, when we examine scripture as a whole, we see some accommodations for those who plan The ant is used as an illustration of preparedness. The one who gathers food for winter. Joseph, we know, is blessed because he has stored up food for the famine. Paul rightly makes plans to take the gospel to the places where Christ's name has never been preached. The Bible is clear that planning in and of itself is not a sin, but James is pointing out to us this morning that there is such a thing as sinful planning. As it is with so many sins that we commit, it all comes down to what is in our hearts. The sin that James is addressing this morning is presumptuous planning. James is correcting those who think and articulate their plans, totally ignoring God in the process. If we look at their statement closely, we find that they make five assumptions that are completely out of their control, but they are acting foolish in their confidence. We see, first, that they choose their own time. They say today or tomorrow. Second, they determine their own location. They're going to go to such and such a city. They select their duration. We will spend a year there. 
They decide their own initiative. We will trade. And lastly, they set their own outcome. They say, we will make a profit. And you can see that self-determination all throughout this passage, we will, we will, we will, as if they are in complete control. And when you begin to see that this is what they are doing, and this is what James is addressing, all of a sudden, this text begins to hit home. Because so often, we are like these businessmen. How often do we live like practical atheists? Yes, we say we believe in God. We come to church. We pray and read our Bibles. But how often do we undertake endeavors? We begin and put our hands to a plow without giving a second thought of prayer, without even thinking about God's blessings on our efforts. How often are we confident in and of ourselves that we speak as if nothing can go wrong? And when it does go wrong, we act as if all we have to do is try a little harder. Just a little more of our own efforts can fix the problem. How often do we find ourselves upset and worried when the plans that we've made does not happen? Plans we make acting like either God does not exist or he does not care. James destroys this mindset this morning. He points out that there are two problems with such a mindset like this. They are both found in verse 14. First, he says, and he reminds us, a very uncomfortable truth, one that we do not like to think about. He calls us to be careful in our planning because life is uncertain. He says, you make all these plans, yet you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. In some ways, we recognize this and accept it. We look at the forecast, the weather forecast often, yet we know more often than not they are wrong, so we make backup plans. But there is another side of us that tries to avoid this unsettling thought. We like our schedule to go exactly as we have it laid out before us. But life is far too complex. All you have to do is sit back and think of the complexities of life and you realize how foolish we are when we think that we are in charge of our lives. Even getting here this morning, if you examine what had to happen in order for you to make it here this morning, all that had to line up, you will stand amazed. You had to be, you had to be awake. You had to wake up. You had to have your health this morning. You had your house had not to, to burn down last night. Your car had to start. You had to drive safely here. All those around you also had to drive safely and not run into you. The list goes on and on. All these things left completely outside of your control. And James is reminding us we must not act like we know what tomorrow will bring our way. But though we know this, how often do we speak in certainties? Not too long ago, I thought I found a sure bet on the stock market. A stock had ran up way, way up in value to a price that was absolutely made no sense. I thought it would certainly come back down. In fact, I made a few phone calls to some friends using a word like guaranteed. I thought we had a ringer of a deal, but that trade would prove costly. And it would humble me and remind me that I cannot know the future no matter how certain I am. Though this unsettles us, though this fact of not knowing what tomorrow will bring unsettles us, 
Charles Spurgeon points out that there is a grace even here. He says, if I were to know that something great was going to happen to me in the future, I would be discontent until that happy day arrived. He also says, if a great sorrow was just around the corner, I would also miss out on the present good because I would be so worried about what was about to happen. He goes on and tells us, it is sufficient that our heavenly Father knows and that should, and in that we should be content. He is wise who does not wish to know what God has not revealed. You see, it should content our heart to know that God has said in Romans 8, 28, he's working all things for our good, and he knows all things. To the uncertainty of life, James adds that this life is brief. Back in verse 14, he says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. The Bible reminds us of this very often. It is interesting, in fact, just how often we see this come up, especially in books like the book of Job. In Job alone, we see that our days, he, Job says, are like a swift runner. He says that we fade away like clouds. When we get to chapter 14 of the book of Job, he opens up by complaining to God. And in his complaint, he said, Man who is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. Even James has told us already that we are like a flower, especially the rich, he says, is like a flower. In James chapter 1, verse 11, he says, The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. In the midst of the pursuit of riches, the rich man will find himself disappearing. The Bible says so much about the brevity of life that the great writer, the great church father, Augustine, said he did not know whether to call it a dying life or a living death. James reminds us of our frailty. And in doing so, he's not just pointing to the same truth, that life is out of, outside of our control, though that this does prove that once again. He is also causing us to pause and say, what am I doing with my life? What are my motivations? If you look back to verse 13, you find, what were these guys doing? What were their plans? What were their motivations? You see, it was profit, that they desired to go and trade and make a profit. Now, the desire of profit is not wrong. We all must have money in order to live in this world. But when profit becomes our motivating factor of our life, we must be careful. The other day, I was talking to my wife about an older friend that we have in common, and I asked, what, does, what do you think her legacy will be? What do you think she desires her legacy to be? What is she living for? I asked Brianna. And in that moment, I was struck that I could use, I could stand to ask myself that question more often. What am I living for? If this life is short, and we know that it is, all you have to do is go out back to our graveyard and you will find graves unattended. There are some graves that just have a rock sitting there. They're lost to history. We do not know who is in that grave. And if they were here, they would tell you this morning, life was short. If we are genuinely here today and gone tomorrow, 
and we believe that we are heading to an eternal home, how, shall the, how should that affect the way we live? It should cause us to use the best, our time to its best use. If we really believe what we say we do, it should cause us to not cling tight to this world, to limit our worldly cares and our worldly projects that so take up our time on this short voyage. And we should devote ourselves to what God has called us to do. James says to do otherwise, to act as if we have control, to act as if this life is not brief, he says, is sinfully arrogant. Skipping down to verse 16, we find he writes, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. In Daniel chapter 4, we see an interesting story play out. Daniel interprets a dream for the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And he sees that Nebuchadnezzar will fall on all fours and forget who he is. That Nebuchadnezzar will act like an ox and, and have to be driven out of the palace in order to, uh, because he, he goes crazy. In Daniel chapter 4, right after that, it says a year later, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, is standing up on his royal palace. He looks out over all that he, he has done. He looks out at the busy and beautiful Babylon, and he says, not being able to contain himself, is this not great Babylon, which I have built with my own mighty power as royal residence and for my glory, in the glory of my majesty? It was in that moment that his dream would come true. God's divine judgment would fall on Nebuchadnezzar and he would be driven out to eat grass like a crazy person for seven years. Now, we may not be as bold as Nebuchadnezzar. We may think we are not that arrogant. But when the calendar comes out for next year, we act as if God is not even there. We begin to plan our trips and our activities without a second thought of God, without a single second of prayer in our life. And though we do this, we are completely not in control. Our schedule, when we look at it, so often it revolves on what we like to do, what we want and what we desire. We make a plan and set our mind to it. How many of us have said, I'm going to work hard, store up money, and retire without giving it a second thought? Is that what God would have me to do? We are even arrogant in our death. I looked up this week, what is the number one funeral song? Do you know what it is? The number one secular funeral song is My Way. Over a dead corpse, they will play, I planned each charted course each careful step along the byway, and more, much more than this, I did it my way, which I find comical as that dead corpse, I guarantee you, wouldn't voluntarily be there. They didn't do it their way. But James calls us to so much more in this life. If we look back up to verse 15, we see he calls us to recognize the will of God. And in doing so, he is calling us to a life of humility. Once again, James refers back to how we speak. He says that instead of planning without any thought of God, we ought to say, 
if the Lord wills. Now here we have to be careful because it is easy for us to turn this into a cliche to make it just another one of those things we say as Christians without putting any thought behind it. But we also must be careful not to downplay what he is calling us to here. I, I was amazed this week as I read a few commentaries how many of them just kind of passed this by. They didn't make anything or emphasize that James here is calling us to express reliance on the will of God, that we are to do this in our lives. Yet when we examine the New Testament, this is their language. They say this all over. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we see Paul writes, But I will come to you if the Lord wills. 1 Corinthians 16, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. Romans chapter 1, I mentioned you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Philippians chapter 2, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Hebrews chapter 6, and this we, we, we will do if God permits. Yes, it's important to know that this is not a magical formula. This is, these are not a magical set of words. We do not obey James' calls if we just simply utter the phrase, if the Lord wills. But what we say does matter. It does matter. Jesus says whatever comes out of our mouth or whatever is in our hearts comes out of our mouth. But it is also true that our mouth can lead our hearts. That what we say and what we put into our lives matters. When we say the Lord wills, and we do so not just saying it flippantly, but we put thought behind it, I am reminding myself I am not in control. I do not know what tomorrow holds. I am reminding myself in that moment I may not even be here. And in doing so, we are humbling ourselves. We are humbly realizing the complexity of life and our frailty. When we confess with our mouth that it, we can only do things by the will of God, we are also reminding ourselves that God does have a will, that he acts in this world, and that he is the one in control. James says he's in control of two places of our lives. First, he says he's in control of the length of our lives. He says, if the Lord wills, we will live. And it is important to note here that there's no conditional statement. Our life is reliant on the will of God and the will of God alone. It does not say, if the Lord wills and we do not get COVID. It does not say, if the Lord wills and I don't come down with cancer. But it says, if the Lord wills, I will live. Psalm 139.16 is one of my favorite verses. It says, the Lord has numbered our days and it has written them in his book before any of them has come to pass. Because if the Lord wills, we will live. Because that is true, we can live this life without fear of death. No one exhibited this more than the man Thomas Jackson. He understood this very well, and he lived by this truth. On July 21st, 1861, Thomas Jackson would lead his soldiers into the battle of Manassas, the first battle of the Civil War, the first major battle of the Civil War. During that battle, he would receive a wound to his hand. 
But because of his actions that day, he would also receive the name we know him by, Thomas Stonewall Jackson. After the battle, one of his captains came to him and saw that he was nursing his hand. And he, in their conversation, the captain would ask Jackson an important question. He would say, General, how can you keep so cool and appear so utterly insensible to danger in such a storm of shells and bullets that rained about you when your hand was hit? Reporters say that Jackson instantly became grave and reverential in his demeanor. He would answer his captain saying, Captain, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as I do in bed. God has fixed the time of my death. I do not concern myself with that, but to always be ready no matter when it may overtake me. He would add after a short pause, Captain, that is the way all men should live. Then they would all be equally brave. We can be brave in the face of death when we trust in the will of God. When we trust that my life will not end until God's task for me here on earth is finished. Because James adds to the length of life that God also has a mission for my life. Throughout life, we make many plans and many goals. But the, the scripture is very clear that we can plan all we want to, but if it is not in God's will, our plans will come to nothing. When I think of this church, I often remind myself of Psalm 127 in verse 1, where the psalmist writes, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. I remind myself that no matter how hard I strive, it is God. He is the one who gives the increase. Some may be here this morning and be discouraged at this truth, but there is a blessing here because when I find myself aligned with the will of God, I can be assured of success. This does not mean that it will always feel good because God does not promise us a life that is easy nor does it mean that we will always comprehend the success. We may not understand it all until we get to heaven. In fact, we will not understand it all until we get to heaven. But it does mean that if I want my life to matter, the most sane thing that I should do is seek after God in his will. His will will not be thwarted. If I am going along with God in his will, there will be success. Be asking yourself, am I where God would have me to be? This starts in God's revealed will in Scripture. So often we want to start in what He hasn't showed us. We want to know how should I live? What should I do with my life? Where should I live? And we ignore the revealed, His revealed will in Scripture. But, by, but the Bible says three different times, this is God's will for you. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we find that it is God's will for us to be submissive to the governing authority and to do good works that no one would be able to look at our lives and talk bad about Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he said, it is God's will for you to be sanctified, for you to be set apart from this world. Is your life different than those who are around you? In 1 Timothy chapter 2, we find that it is God's will that all would be saved. Are you playing your role in that? You see, James is calling us not to live like the businessman, 
He is calling us not to live a life wasted, a life driven by profit. But our hearts should cry out and always be crying out if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, I will spend my time doing this or that. If the Lord wills, I will go here or there. If the Lord wills, my children will become. If the Lord wills, I will take this ministry or that ministry. If the Lord wills, I will wake up in the morning. So what drives your life? Do you live your life saying, thy will be done or my will be done? It's a very simple question, yet with profound consequences to the way we live. James finishes this chapter with a call to obedience. He says in verse 14, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. Throughout this very practical book, James has given us a rather long list of things we are to be doing. We are to persevere through trials, seek after wisdom, love our neighbors, and watch our tongues. So many things that we so often fail to do. Here in this verse, James is telling us it is not enough to know. It's not enough to know what is in the Bible. It's not enough to know what is in his letters. We must put it to action. He reminds us of, of his call to be doers of the word and not hearers only. We have to take the truths that we know and apply it to our lives and live by them. In our immediate context this morning, this means it should affect the way we plan. It may mean that we need to take and make space and time for the good that we ought to do. Our lives are not to be full of this world like the business people. He had those, those businessmen made plans to trade. Their, their schedules were full, made plans to trade and make money. Their focus was not on God, but on money. And all too often, we are like those businessmen. We know what God has called us to do, yet our schedules are also full. When we step back and examine our lives, it becomes clear that our priorities are different. We brush it off. We say, I will spend time praying. I will spend time reading God's word some other time. I am too busy right now. I will get back around to it when everything calms down. Our worldly desires expose us. It proves that we are not being driven by what matters to God, but what matters to us. James says to know the right thing to do and to fail to do it, it is sin. That's a heavy verse. It is heavy and humbling. It hits us right between the eyes, but James does not write this in order to crush us. This is a heavy weight, but he's not writing in order to crush us, but to remind us who we are and what we stand in need of. In need of. Once again, pointing us back to verse 6. When you examine your life by verse 17, whoever knows the right thing to do but fails to do it, to him it is sin. We know without a doubt we stand in need of great grace. And he is calling us to stand amazed at the graciousness of our God and to humble ourselves before him. To do so may mean that we need to take a second look at our schedule. That we need to stop acting as if we are in control of our time. Stop acting like there is no one greater than us that makes demands on our lives. Stop acting like God doesn't have a will for us. There may be some here in the room that have never placed their faith in Jesus. And in your position, you are of most of all arrogant. 
You are acting like God either does not exist or that you have tomorrow in order to get right. Yet James has already told us we are a mist, that we are here today and then we vanish. You may not have tomorrow. So the call is for you to turn from your sins and humble yourself before the Lord. If you would like to talk with someone about how to do that, come talk to me, either in the moment of reflection that we will have in a second, or after church. I will stay as long as it takes for you to understand what it is like to humble yourself before him. I pray that you would do so today. James says, what is your life? If we sit and focus on that and, and come to face with the reality, we will realize that we are powerless. We have no control over our future. That we are momentary. We are here today and gone tomorrow. Therefore, the wisest thing that we can do with our lives is follow after our Savior, who when he was about to go to the cross on our behalf, he said, not my will be done, but yours be done. Let's pray. Father God, you are good and gracious to us, and that is exactly what we need. We stand in need of great grace and mercy because we are sinners, Lord. Nothing can show us that more than verse 17. How often do we not do what you have called us to do? How often do we know that we are to take on this or that task, but we fail to do it because we rather do what we want to do. Lord, we come before you now humbly submitting to your will, saying we need grace and we desire that, Lord. I pray that you would humble us where we need to be humbled. I pray, Lord, you will remind us of sins that we need to repent of, and I pray, Lord, that you would draw us to yourself as we draw near to you. In your son's name we pray, amen. We're going to take a moment. and.